The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking. When we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the show. Today's classic episode is about a very real conspiracy. Uh, As a matter of fact, a lot of world events are the result of conspiracies. And this one is a story about a group called the Black Hand. You may not have heard of them, but they fundamentally affected your life regardless of where you are now i don't want to spoil much in this intro section let's jump right in this is a really cool topic from ufos to psychic powers and government conspiracies history is riddled with unexplained events you can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noah. They call me Ben. You, of course, are you, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Today, we're delving into a conspiracy, not a conspiracy theory, more than 100 years old, and it's one that still affects the world today. Something that sounds like a story just ripped straight from some kind of Tom Clancy political thriller, but it actually happened. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it's really about this bigger idea. That a single person can, for better or worse, actually change the world. It's like what your mom told you, only true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. it's, uh, so travel back with us, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Welcome to the early 20th century. There are all sorts of dramatic breakthroughs in technology. There are all sorts of uh, fundamentally historic human moments. But unbeknownst to most, the world was inching closer and closer to a deadly global conflict. And it's what we today refer to as World War I. What was World War I, you ask? Well, we shall tell you, starting with the fact that World War I began in July of 1914 and lasted until November of 1918. And during that time, Germany, 
Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire, also known as the Central Powers, fought against Great Britain, France, Russia, Italy, Romania, Japan, and the United States, a.k.a. the Allied Powers. And thanks to a lot of this new technology that been alluded to earlier, we're talking about trench warfare, mustard gas, uh, all kinds of uh, the types of tank that mm-hmm. you could build at mm-hmm. that time. Now, it saw unprecedented levels, World War I did, of carnage and just human destruction. Just utter, utter inhumane brutality. Yeah, atrocities. Mm-hmm. And by the time this conflict was over, the Allied powers claimed victory, uh, but it's at best a Pyrrhic victory because yeah. we're talking about a death toll of more than 16 million people, civilians and soldiers alike. I mean, with the technology that we have now and the way we can target airstrikes, our casualty rates just pale in comparison Mm -hmm. to what we're talking about here. I mean, this was just astronomical numbers. Oh, buddy, if you think that European political relations are complicated and screwy now, are you in for a wild ride? In the early 20th century, Europe was very much a continent in transition with a quagmire of ever-shifting alliances, rival powers, and often contradictory aims. And when when we say, like, a continent in transition, there were powerhouse economies like Austria-Hungary and Germany, and then there were places like Poland, and this is a war where occasionally there would be a group of people with tanks and a group of people on horses. Yeah. Which is which very strange. Sounds like time travel gone wrong. Uh, even now, a hundred years later, a century more later, scholars and historians continue to debate the causes of this war. We have a little overview for you of some of the most often cited contributing factors. One of the biggest ones is this concept of mutual defense agreements. So mm. countries that have signed contracts, treaties between them, where if one nation gets attacked, the other one will step in to defend it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got all these allied countries that were required through these contractual agreements mm-hmm. to defend other countries. Um, there were all kinds of alliances, Russia and Serbia. Okay. Germany and Austria-Hungary, mm-hmm. France and Russia, Britain and France and Belgium, mm-hmm. and Japan and Britain. And you can already see, or you can imagine, with all of these different uh, groups, if a single one of these gets attacked, it's going to create this lethal domino effect. Yeah, and, and several are on multiple lists, right? Like Russia is on two lists. They have an agreement with Serbia and France. Mm-hmm. So I don't talk about too much of my past, but as you guys know, I was at a time uh, very close to joining the State Department Mm -hmm. before what I would call irreconcilable creative differences led us apart. And one of the the things that always got me is, although international relations are very, very complicated, there is one or two, there are a, a couple of great analogies. And one is... Although it can be daunting to hear all these names thrown around, mm-hmm. don't picture these countries as nations. Picture the world as a house party. Yeah. And every nation is a person at this house party. And there's a limited amount of beer or chips. And everybody's making deals with each other to say how they're going to divide the stuff up, right? Yeah. And inevitably... Are they ruffles? Something goes wrong. Well, of course they're ruffles, man. This is big time. Is there onion dip? 
I, you know, that's a good question. Is it homemade? <laughs> you got to be careful with onion dip. You know, it's not, they're not, not all onion dips are created equal. And if you have a good recipe for one, do send it to us. Now, surely you can probably huh. onion dip into this uh, description here. Sure. Yeah. Onion dip would be uh, another, another resource. Let's say onion dip was, uh, onion dip would be like oil in that case, right? No, beer is oil, dude. Beer is oil? Yeah. Because there's so much beer at this house party. Okay. All right. And they're running out. And they're running out. And you can already see, as Matt said, this lethal domino effect. So what happened in uh, World War One is it's going to sound a little bit complicated. And we do want to make sure everybody knows when we say Austria-Hungary, it's with a hyphen mm-hmm. because that was one country. Yes. All right. So Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. Russia got involved because they're tight with Serbia. Germany saw Russia mobilizing, and they declared war on Russia. And then France had to had to hang out because they have an agreement with Russia. And so they were going against Germany and Austria-Hungary. Germany attacked France through Belgium, and when Belgium got pulled in, that meant that Britain had to go in. And then Japan was like, also me. And then later, Italy and the U.S. would enter, but not at the beginning. That's mm-hmm. just that's just one illustration. That's just one contributing factor, and there are other ones too. I think the U.S. also kind of has always, even like in World War II, had this sense that oh, this isn't for us. This is we're mm-hmm. not. This is the, everybody else's problem. Yeah, we're kind of listening to it on the radio and hanging back. But then there's this sense that oh crap, maybe maybe we are going to get pulled into this mess. And mm-hmm. then of course, inevitably, that's what happens. Yeah, we're very much an isolationist country for a long time. <laughs> I'm totally just imagining the house party. Yeah. In the U.S. just being like, bro, bro, what are you doing, bro? Mm-hmm. And then going in, they have, they have to get involved. Well, the U.S. is also— Get your hands off my Yeti, bro! <laughs> the U.S. is also uh, separated by two oceans and resource-rich. So at yeah. this party, they're like in somebody else's room, <laughs> yeah. eating their own food, rubbing their own Yeti. Mm. They're like, wow, it sounds rough out there. Yeah, rubbing your Yeti is not a euphemism. Yeah, what is a Yeti? It's a it's a fancy cooler. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. But now that phrase, rubbing their own Yeti, is going to stick with people. Yep. Hey, what's imperialism? <laughs> Good question, Ben. I'm glad you asked. As it turns out, imperialism is a whole lot like a Yeti cooler. Not at all, though. Before World War One, you see, Africa and parts of Asia were uh, points of contention in, um, well, among, rather, the European countries. So mm. many European countries, they sought to expand their spheres of influence by building empires. So uh, with the U.S. functioning as an independent entity all on its own in that isolationist way we just described, Europeans were forced to make trade deals with us, the U.S., which uh, at the time, and you know, continues to be quite resource-rich. This is an important source mm-hmm. of natural resources for some of these other countries. So rather than enjoying the advantages of mercantilism, they had to deal. Mm-hmm. But like with peers. Right. So, mm-hmm. right. Uh, in, in African and Asian societies, however, this meant that they would continue to bear the brunt of brutal colonial actions, resource extraction. Why pay for uh, a mine or give people a living wage when you can go in and plunder and murder them? You know, I used to be in a hardcore band called Brutal Colonial Action. Oh, yeah? Totally. What what instrument did you play? The uh, the musket. You played the musket? Whoa, oh, yeah, I'm familiar with your work, man. It takes a long time to play a note. And now uh, it really does. Yeah, it's like the, it's like you're the guy with the cymbals who's all in every large orchestra who's just waiting yeah. for that shot. They weren't using muskets in World War One. Yeah, you I'm know. Not, I, 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 
we're just time traveling, man. It's cool. Mm-hmm. Right stuff on. gets, you know, stuff gets like woven in. I guarantee you someone had a musket. <laughs> I guarantee you, you're not going to yeah. throw away a perfectly good musket. <laughs> so true. So the raw materials and the resources these places could provide were seen as crucial to many European nations, not just for expansion, but mm-hmm. for maintenance and functioning, right? And this increasing competition, this desire for larger and larger empires led to an increase in military confrontations and skirmishes, which leads us to another cause, militarism. An arms race began at the dawn of the 20th century. By 1914, Germany had the largest buildup. Great Britain and Germany really significantly increased their naval forces. And, and this is very important, in Germany and Russia especially, the military became uh, an increasingly dominant force in politics and public policy, exerting massive influence. And remember, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, and then comes in this wonderful thing called nationalism that is a double-edged sword, uh, but it can do great things as well. Um, So each of these separate nations Mm -hmm. wants to be the big potato uh, that's not a thing, but <laughs> the big potato, <laughs> the biggest I like potato it. of the bunch. Yeah, uh, you know they want to have the largest amount of influence, mm-hmm. uh, resource control, mm-hmm. economic wealth within their country, and all kinds of trade with other countries. Yeah, make the most delicious wedges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, they have like the sour cream and the chives. <laughs> yes, they want to. They want to be the big cheese potato. Uh, so, past past wars and all these battles that have mm-hmm. occurred throughout history up until this time had drawn all these national borders, but in various countries. There are ethnic minorities mm. that consider themselves unfairly lumped into one of these nations, like under control of perhaps laws that they don't right. agree with because that line got drawn. Would that be similar to like the Israeli-Palestinian issue? It would be. It would be similar because there would be people who in the in, in the United Nations, maybe, maybe a, another example would be like the Balkans, but in the mm-hmm. United Nations, uh, viewing of a country – uh, it, it just goes by what everybody else agreed forms yes. the borders of that country. And, for instance, in parts of the African continent, the borders were specifically and purposely drawn to separate concentrations of communities or tribes. Right? Yeah. And that's where you go – that's where you arrive at things like um, this, the war in Rwanda yep. where the Hutu and the Tutsi uh, had a, a brutal – Brutal war. That's a, yeah, I get that, Ben. That's a great example. It's also kind of like in India, the border regions of India and Pakistan, there's all kinds of conflicts that occur there because of some of these differences. I'll tell you what, though. That ceremony uh, where they close yes. and open the gate is amazing. One of my favorite YouTube things mm-hmm. to do. It's 15 minutes long, and it's worth every second. So specifically, much of the origin of World War One was based on the desire of Slavic people in Bosnia and Herzegovina to break off from the country of Austria-Hungary and become part of a greater mm-hmm. united Serbia. Because they're like, why are you in control? We're Serbian. Yep. Uh, we're not Austrian, you know. But there was one more thing, a match to the powder keg. With all these burgeoning tensions, rivalries, and races for riches, it seemed Europe was teetering on the brink of calamity. And all it would take is one more push. Boop. That was the push. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, like, actually, it was more like... That push, yeah. yeah, exactly, was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand on the 28th of June in 1914. Can we just take this opportunity real quick to say that Franz Ferdinand was a pretty underrated band? Whatever happened to those guys? Are they still mm-hmm. around? I wonder if they listen to the show. 
They've got to be around. You think so? Yeah. Sure. They're probably still <laughs> in contact with each other. What about the Arctic Monkeys? Oh, they're I've, definitely together. They, they had a huge album just a year or two, a couple years ago. Yeah. And I, I think that one guy might go solo. The the lead... Uh, the monkey? The main monkey? The main monkey. Yep. <laughs> well, anyway, this band that in, in, we're talking about yeah. took their name from Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was assassinated on the 28th of June in 1914. Mm-hmm. And while many of the circumstances leading to the war were totally in place at this point, um, and the war may have, at this point, ultimately been considered to be inevitable, the death of this single elite mm-hmm. aristocrat mm-hmm. was the match that lit the fuse of aforementioned powder keg. Yes, the feather that broke the camel's back, the penny that shattered the train station. The badger that <laughs> broke out of the bag and mm-hmm. massacred mm-hmm. everyone. Yeah. Yep, the final potato, they got microwaved a little too long. Nope, nope, not that one. <laughs> no, keep it. The okay. dog who kept barking at the son of Sam. All right, so <laughs> this death, was the result of one of the Western world's most significant conspiracies. Have you heard of the Black Hand? Well, you will hear about it right after a word from our sponsor. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
Here's where it gets crazy. The Black Hand, also known as Unification or Death, was a secret military society formed in May of 1911 by officers in the Army of the Kingdom of Serbia. Uh, they were hellbent, or leva, on uniting all of the territories with a South Slavic majority not ruled by either uh, Serbia or Montenegro. The precursor of this secret group had already assassinated the Serbian royal couple in 1903. Both the Black Hand and its precursor were led by a fellow named Captain Dragutin Dimitrevic, uh, often called by the codename Apis, which is a god from Egyptian mythology. And I do want to say that none of us are Serbian, so mm -hmm. we are not going to pronounce these names as native speakers. Yes, Thank you, Ben. You are correct. So what is this Black Hand conspiracy, Although, other than sounding like an amazing band name? Well, okay, so then you have to go back to 1911, and that's when this group tried to assassinate Franz Joseph. He was the current, at that time, ruler of Austria-Hungary. Mm -hmm. um, this dude, he's an old gentleman, he's in his 80s, and for a couple of reasons, they failed. And then they turned their attention to this dude's heir, who was Franz Ferdinand. Yes. Uh, this is this is a tricky part of history. So Apis, Apis, mm -hmm. the captain, the leader of the Black Hand, wanted Franz Ferdinand dead not because he was oppressing the Slavic mm -hmm. minority living in his kingdom under his rule, but because he was planning to make important concessions to the South Slavs that he controlled. This would make the Black Hand's dream of a unified Serbia much, much more difficult. Why would you throw a revolution if your home country is making improvements on its own? Yeah, they're just seeing or they're imagining there are going to be these small incremental moves, right? That it's going to mm -hmm. take, I don't know, decades, maybe centuries sure. to get what they want. Let's do it quickly. Pull that Band-Aid off. And the Black Hand was not acting alone. They worked in concert with another group named Norodna Odbrana, and its satellite organizations, particularly a group named Young Bosnia. Naroda Adbrona was older and more established, so this gave the Black Hand massive street cred. So by 1914, um, the conspiracy uh, had enlarged to a membership including hundreds of individuals, many of whom were officers in the Serbian army. Uh, they trained guerrilla fighters and taught saboteurs uh, similar in many ways to the way current intelligence agencies train revolutionaries in other countries. And mm -hmm. it's not easy to keep an international revolutionary terrorist freedom fighter organization uh, ring a secret. It's hard. Mm -hmm. it takes the work of many. So members had very little knowledge of the overall organization. Uh, it was on a need-to-know basis. They would know only the member of their cell and one superior who gave them orders. Yeah, it feels a lot like uh, secret societies that we looked into in the past. Or possibly the way modern-day terrorist cells are operating. Even right. the government, the military, like, you may not know who's functioning. They're called cells because they're self-contained. Right. They don't have a line to others. They cannot give information that would lead to the capture of anyone outside of their little unit. And they can function independently. So this, you know, this is uh, a very successful strategy. Mm -hmm. There's a reason people stick with it. The Serbian government, it seems, was aware of this force, aware of the Black Hand and at least some of its activities, though they may not have known exactly how many people 
who were supposed to be working for the government were working for the black hand, this became a nightmarish time to be a member of the official government because once upon a time, it was politically dangerous to disagree with the black hand, like disagreeing with a powerful lobbying group and still wanting to be in politics here. But by 1914, it was physically dangerous because this group saw politically motivated murders as just another tool, like out there with, uh, you know, pamphlets. They oh, and distributed some pamphlets, and we had to shoot this one guy. Don't worry, we made sure everybody knew it was us. You ever handled a pamphlet, man? Those edges will nick Mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. They are dangerous. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there's a statistic about how many people are grievously injured by pamphlets. (laughs) If not, then just us putting out into the aether will mean that it is now created. Uh Someone's going to write back to us with information about pamphlets. Oh, my gosh, send us a pamphlet about pamphlets. Any pamphlets will do. Send them our way. So it's con- commonly believed you that... you better use legitimate postage. Oh, yeah, which we'll get to later in this episode. <laughs> yes, um, we will. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, now it is believed that Apis recruited six Bosnian Serbs for, for this assassination attempt, and he was really hoping to exterminate Franz Ferdinand before uh, he improved, like we said, the life mm. for the Serbs in Austria-Hungary. And these six men were smuggled across the border in an arrangement similar to that of the famous Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. And they were trained in bomb-making, mm-hmm. deployment, and marksmanship. And now, although the prime minister attempted to stop these guys from leaving the country, the official government was largely helpless when attempting to oppose these guys, though the Black Hand in general. And it had eaten all of the power structure that existed in the country from within. The Black Hand was like this rock that was occurring. It was a deep state. Yeah. is a term we would use today, right? Mm-hmm. To this day, scholars don't agree on how sincere the prime minister's efforts were. Was he really, uh, was it really a matter of him having his hands tied or was he more like Gene Wilder and Willy Wonka going, oh, no, stop, help, please. You know? <laughs> don't fall in the chocolate. Well, one thing's for sure. The, the men, the six terrorists, arrived in Sarajevo and kicked it for a month waiting for the time to strike, and absolutely nothing was done to stop them. you got to remember, it's a little harder to track human <clears throat> beings at this time, right? Mm-hmm. Just to give a little bit of that. like No hey. GPS? Yeah. And- uh, yeah, and let's look at the day off. So a month passes. One of the terrorists, a fellow named Nadelko, was the first to act. He threw a bomb at the Archduke's car. There was a guy who was supposed to throw a bomb earlier, but for some reason he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. So he... Th- Through the bomb, the Archduke, uh, who was with his pregnant wife at the time, uh, tried to cover her. The driver said some version of, like, hot pennies. I don't know. I don't want to curse on the show. And so he slammed on the gas, and the bomb, uh, the the guy who threw it forgot that the bomb had a 10-second delay, (gasps) so it fell off the bumper and hit a car of completely innocent people who happened to be behind the Archduke. Mm. And this guy, Nadelko, had tuberculosis, right? Mm. And had already kind of decided this was going to be his last hurrah, a total suicide mission. So Mm -hmm. after throwing the bomb, he swallowed a cyanide pill. Uh, And to make certain that he died, he also... This isn't funny, but it's it's a little intense. It's it's It's, rough. It's intense. He, He also jumped into a nearby river. Unfortunately, the pill did not work. It only made him sick. And the river he jumped into, because it was a dry season was only a, a few centimeters deep. Now that is funny. And God. so he got dragged out of the river and arrested. Talk about a bad, bad day. 
Would it have been a better day if he had died? I mean, I don't know. We're, we're, we're bad day splitting for, hairs here. Bad day for him. Yeah fair, yeah, fair enough. Now imagine you're one of the other conspirators who are trying to take this out. And, and you're you just wa- like, fuck. Well, you just watch all this go down. <laughs> you watch the bomb bounce, yeah. hit another car. Yeah. Uh-oh. Other dude grabs a cyanide and then jumps off and then <laughs> splats into the shallow river. And people pull him out while he's throwing yeah. up. And you're just going, uh, and the crowd beat the living tar out of this man before the yeah. police got to him. So, yeah, you're watching this. Uh, these these other assassins are watching. They're depressed. They're upset. They wonder what they should do now. And I'm telling you guys, the God's honest truth, one of the terrorists, a 19-year-old named Gavrilo Princip, was like, forget this. I'm going to go get a sandwich. Yep. I don't care what you guys do. I'm going to get a sandwich. He walked to the local deli. To be fair, a lot of historians nowadays say that he knew the route the car would take and purposely went there to wait. But I like Mm -hmm. imagining somebody getting frustrated and going to get a sandwich. Yeah. And meanwhile, the Archduke, who is understandably PO'd, insists on continuing his journey, going to the hospital. They want to change the route for safety purposes, but nobody told the driver. Whoa. And to give a shout out to a fellow uh, podcast, uh, when we went to the NYC Podfest, we saw Aaron from Lore do a live reading of an unpublished, he hasn't done this as an episode story, involving this entire fiasco mm-hmm. and a, uh, a haunted car. Um, man, I hope he releases that because that was the coolest story that he told great, that night. Yeah. Yep. Um, but yeah, so on to further debacle. So no one told the driver about the change in uh, the plan. Um, the bodyguard noticed, told the driver, and the driver decided to turn around. Um, the street where they turned the car happened to have a deli. Oh, my oh, goodness. Oh, here we what go. What a dink. And so it just so happened that as a particularly depressed assassin, a failed assassin, a would-be assassin, mm-hmm. walked out of the deli with his delicious confection. I wish I, I wish history knew what kind of sandwich, kind of sandwich. I feel like sandwich history is, is sort of a lost... Uh, I feel like we can learn a lot from the sandwiches of history. Yeah, oh, definitely. absolutely. We could have known what was going on in this man's mind. Yeah, even the story of condiments is amazing. Totally. So he walks out of the deli with his mystery sandwich, and what should he see but the Archduke's very car, not 10 feet away from his delectable deli treat. His shame sandwich. Yes. The car was, at this point, stopping and attempting to reverse <laughs> directly in front of him. Mm-hmm. So what happened next, Matt? Uh, yeah, that's when he pulled out his gun and he fired two times. One, the the first shot hit Archduke and, and it, hit him in his neck. Mm-hmm, in his jugular. jugular. Yep, so he was going to be done. And the second one hit the Archduke's pregnant wife in her stomach. And just to go back to the lore thing, and, and a big part of this guy's story is the unreliable narrator. So part of the, right. the, the point of the story, as he told it, was wasn't clear mm-hmm. if everything was true. But... I like this detail, the idea that this kid basically blind-fired into a crowd mm-hmm. and, like, managed to, like, pop off these two deadly shots. And he attempted to swallow a cyanide pill as well. This one also did not work. As he Where re- are they getting these cyanide pills? They're from a person who's really bad at making cyanide pills. Yeah, seriously. At discount cyanide store. So as he raised his gun to his temple, the deed was done. Six Semper Tyrannus and all that, so he's ready to take his own life. But authorities intervened, arrested him before he could shoot himself. Imagine a hand grabbing the wrist, and now it just fires into the air. And yeah. they, of course, beat the ever-loving Christ out of the guy. 
Uh, but they kept him alive and they kept him in jail. And that's when we saw the immediate aftermath. Things escalated. This is when you start to see the conspiracy begin to be exposed to the mm-hmm. authorities, mm-hmm. Uh, or at least officially, and the right people are starting to see it. The inevitable events were all set in motion. So Germany and Austria-Hungary demanded a, a massive investigation into what exactly happened, how did this happen, and who was involved. And the Serbian prime minister gave zero, since we're a family show, I'll say francs. Yep, zero francs. He gave zero francs about it. He literally told them that not only did he not know anything about this plot, but that, quote, nothing had been done so far, and the matter did not concern the Serbian government. Ooh. Germany asked Russia to intercede. Russia was like, eh. Nah. Yeah. So, then, on 23rd of July, Austria-Hungary issued a letter with 10 demands to ensure the destruction of the anti-Austrian network in Serbia. And this document became known as the July Ultimatum, and here are a few choice excerpts. So, they cited earlier international agreements respecting sovereignty and peaceful relations. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also gave Serbia 48 hours to respond, so they put a clock on that biz. And then Serbia accepted all but one demand um, which was to allow Austrian military investigators into Serbian territories. But it turns out there was another conspiracy at play here. Austria, you see, Austria-Hungary, had absolutely no intention of accepting anything. Uh, they were set to reject whatever response Serbia gave, and they were doing this because Germany wanted a full-scale war, and this was the perfect opportunity. On July 28th, Austria-Hungary declared war. Hold on, you're saying Germany? Wanted to start a world war? History's long. Hmm, it is indeed. Why don't we hear a quick word from our sponsor? The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. 
Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And we're back. Now, multiple multiple shows have examined World War One in various facets. There have mm-hmm. been many wonderful books written about it. When I say wonderful, I don't mean they're a joy to read. I mean they're very well written. Yeah, they're full of information. So we're looking at just this small conspiracy, this this powder keg, right? And rather than the war entire. So our big question is what became of the Black Hand. So there were multiple conspirators involved in this fiasco and they were exposed. So they were caught and they served prison time or were executed. So then towards the end of 1916, the Prime Minister of Serbia decided the Hand had outlived its usefulness and resolved to destroy the organization. Yeah, but it seems like such a difficult thing to do once all of those tendrils have been released and the cells exist separately, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, you can cut off the head, you know, you can cut off one head of a multi-headed yeah. monster and, you know. Send a message at Hail least. Hydra. Ooh. So by 1917, this prime minister had arrested a lot of the, the leaders, like you said, you, you start taking out the people who are making decisions, mm-hmm. including Apis. The leader of the Black Hand was subjected to a real-life kangaroo court. And a kangaroo court is much less fun than it sounds. Yep. A kangaroo court is something where it's a a farce rather than a real legal investigation. So despite the fact that he and his other co-conspirators were very obviously not the assassins of this other assassination attempt, um, he was convicted of it, and he, along with three colleagues, was executed by firing squad on the 26th of June, 1917. Mm. And for many, um, this this is a, a significant ending milestone in the story of the Black Hand. And increasingly, as history continues, you know, this is further and further and further away from us now— if I've done the math right, no one listening to our show was around when this happened. I don't want to pigeonhole anybody. So if you were there firsthand, if you used to hang out at a sandwich shop in Sarajevo, let us know. <laughs> but right now, I mean, we're joking a little bit, but right now it leads us to the immediate question, which is why should we still remember this story? Well, because really this is just one example of how easily this thing that we call civilization, all of the organization all of the uh, the working together and the economies and all of this, how easily it can collapse in on itself with one small little thing because of disagreements between groups of people. Mm-hmm. And there's a big, big difference today. Our species possesses weapons of war capable of flattening the planet and damn near everything on it. And we're literally, we could be one wrong turn away from that. Yikes. And you have to imagine this black hand that was 
operating inside this government, right? Um, in all parts of it, or a lot of various different parts, you have to imagine today, if you look at, we're just going to, I'm going to use the United States government and military as an example, because that's where we are. But if there are small cells, splinter groups that believe very whole, wholeheartedly a certain way, believe that, uh, just as an example, that the United States should break up again and turn into independent states, right? You have a small group of operatives who mm. exist, and they're in high places, they're in low places, they're strategically placed throughout the government and the military. That is a possibility. That's a hypothetical, complete mm. hypothetical. But that kind of thing could exist anywhere. And when you bring into play, like you said, Ben, our technology to destroy the world, it's mm. pretty terrifying. Yeah, it's uh, it's the the problem is not that it's possible it's that it's plausible mm -hmm. you know and then uh, no i think you raised a great point when you said it's almost it, it's almost certain that there's some version of this somewhere mm -hmm. that exists now yeah. with access to weapons that people in world war 1 could not imagine so if those groups exist and we're not saying that we have proof that they do but if they exist what are they up to for now that's the stuff they don't want you to know and we'd like to know what you think about this. What lessons can we learn from the black hand? Do you have, have you heard any theories in your neck of the global woods about the activities of any similar group? And speaking of hearing from you, that reminds me, it's time for Shout Out Corners. Our first shout out comes from Linnell. I hope I'm saying that right, Linnell. If I'm not, I just said it twice incorrectly. Linnell says, Hi, Ben, Matt, and Noel. I've enjoyed your show for some time and finally had an excuse to write in. I am a chemist working for a small chemical company, and for many years, one of my primary jobs was to answer questions from customers. I got a call several years ago from a man with a heavy accent looking for red mercury. Mm. I had never heard of this, and the man did not give much of an explanation about what he was looking for. The name didn't make sense to me as a chemist, and the call... It remained a mystery until I listened to your episode. Now I wonder if I had a conversation with a would-be terrorist. Oh, and Linnell says, uh, love the show. Please continue exploring the strange ideas out there. Thank you so much, Linnell. Yeah, it's interesting to hear from someone with first-hand experience of getting a call for red mercury. Yeah. You know, and I'm still, I'm still on the fence about that one, guys. I don't. You know, is it all a shaggy dog story? I am still not sure. So thank you so much for writing in, Linnell. And our next our next letter arrives from Jenna. She says, hi, guys. I love the podcast. But something really bothered me about the last episode's shout-out corner. I listen to the podcast because you often examine things from multiple sides. The letter you read about vaping did not do that. It encouraged people to deny that vaping is dangerous. That is a conspiracy and to not believe their doctors. That is not all the sides. My father and I fought about his smoking my entire life. And a couple of years ago, he was excited to have almost quit entirely due to vaping. Only a few months later, he died, and I was devastated. It was two days before Christmas. The cause of death was not being able to fight off pneumonia due to popcorn lung, something that happens when you smoke vapors. I was so happy he had quit, and it killed him. 
please, please, please let people know that there are two sides to this issue and vaping can kill you. Could the tobacco industry be trying to shut it down? Of course, I'm sure they are. But the reality is that vaping is just as dangerous as tobacco. I would not want someone else to lose their father because I said nothing. My father and I loved history and conspiracy theories. I'm gutted to have found your podcast after he died. He would have loved it. And I thank you for getting me through really hard times. But please, when it comes to issues like this, present both sides. Thank you, Jenna. Wow. Uh, that's terrible, Jenna. Sorry that that happened to your father. That's a reaction to a letter from a previous episode where someone wrote to us saying that they think vaping is a conspiracy. Yes. Uh, and just to jump in here, I did a little bit of research on this, uh, further research, and it appears that a lot of the issues with vaping arise from certain food additives that yeah, are meant for flavoring. Right. And it exists usually in uh, fruity flavors. Mm -hmm. And it's not as common, it's not as common as the chem, like the deadly chemicals are that exist in cigarettes, mm -hmm. right? But it's still a problem. And there's no doubt that when the vape phenomenon kind of hit full bore, that there wasn't as much oversight of these various oh, products and additives sure. as the cigarette industry obviously has to deal with. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of early adopters and not a lot of research that was available as to what the actual implications of mm -hmm. using this. People just automatically assumed that it's not carcinogenic because it's not, you know, it's not cigarettes. It's not, um, you're not burning carbon, carbon monoxide right. in your lungs. But there's not a 50 year study yet. Well, yeah. and yeah. as we see little things trickle out, whether it's this popcorn lung study or whether it's other, you know, uh, side effects of vaping. Mm -hmm. It takes time, you know, yeah. and the cigarette industry has been around for a long time. So it's the kind of thing where we certainly wouldn't have intentionally said one was better than the other. It's mm -hmm. just a matter of like kind of rolling the dice with anything you put in your body, right? That's, yeah, and we really appreciated your letter, Jenna, and we wanted to get it out there because so often when something is a, a newer technology and like the public eye, mm -hmm. people tend to... Um, I don't want to say deify it, but they tend to look at it through rose-tinted glasses. Yes. Totally. You it's know? like, this is, the, oh, this is the safe alternative to cigarettes. Because right, it's fixing right. a problem, right? A lot of new technologies are meant to make a slight adjustment on a problem that exists. And then you got marketing that just doubles down on that Absolutely. effect. You know? So, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, I, I, it's, it's definitely a tricky territory, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure no one intended to come across as promoting Right. Anything like that. Yeah. And as as we always say, listeners, uh, your choices, of course, are your own. It is not within our purview to tell anyone what to do, but we do want to assure people that a lot of advertisements are meant to sell something to you rather than educate you. Thank you for writing in, Jenna. And then finally, we have a shout-out from Dave. Um, he says, in your episode about Red Mercury, you guys wondered why bother to make fake stamps. Yes, oh, Dave, <laughs> oh, my hero, tell me about what this. What is the profit margin in that? Well, aside from use on postage, mass mailing, stamps were once used as a cash substitute. I personally prefer seashells. That's me, Noel Brown, talking, not Dave. Um, accepted by a lot of mail order concerns for low-dollar transactions. Oh, okay. You know, that's funny. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I can see that, and I it's think I've heard that before. They I think I've heard that stamps. before. Yeah, totally. That's cool. So, mm -mm. then, in a letter to the New York Times, 
On October 10th, 1862, Postmaster James Wakefield stated that Congress had authorized, quote, postal currency to be issued through the Treasury Department, which later evolved into postal money orders. So at first, postal currency was issued in set dollar amounts, and it was common to use stamps to make up the cents. In addition, the Treasury did not provide the post office with sufficient notes for the need, although the postmaster noted that postage stamps are made available for the prepayment of postage only. There were few options. So this unauthorized use led to the trade of postage stamps, even though their only endpoint redemption came when used to mail a letter or package. Interesting. Um, and that's why you should all use stamps.com to mail <laughs> your letters or packages. We use it around here. Boy, that, do we that was also Noel Brown at the end. Boy, that wasn't Dave. Boy, do we ever. So a black market for stamps, right, with the Kansas All Dave. Back to Dave. I'm speaking as Dave, channeling Dave. A black market for stamps with the cancellation stamp washed off, developed both for trade and for postage, being used until they were too damaged or dirty. So stamps were never printed on special currency paper or with extra security measures, making counterfeiting Easy. Uh-huh. It's hard to believe for us, but small fortunes could be made on what was basically penny postage. Dave, that was glorious on so many levels. Yep, what a fantastic letter. Just a history nugget. Stamp fraud's a real thing. Yeah. <laughs> There's a stamp tycoon out That's there. That's why you should use stamppfraud.com oh. for all your postal fraudulent, <laughs> for all your fraudulent postage needs. I really want to know what Dave does for a living. He teaches people amazing facts. <laughs> uh, that's true. Thank you very much to Dave, Jenna, and Linnell. This concludes our... And that's the end of this classic episode. If you have any thoughts or questions about this episode... You can get into contact with us in a number of different ways. One of the best is to give us a call. Our number is 1-833-STDWYTK. If you don't want to do that, you can send us a good old-fashioned email. We are. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.